trust you're having a good week. If not, you're in the right place. Uh, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians one more time, huh? This is We're going to finish out, hopefully uh, tonight, finish out the, the book. Uh, the Really, the book. Yeah, book's kind of a big word for a little epistle, isn't it? Five chapters, letter. Maybe letter would be better than a book, right? You like book? It's all semantics here, right? <laughs> yeah. Small book. Books come in all sizes. So, yeah, that's right. Okay, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started here. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble in Jesus' name and to study your word, which uh, speaks with authority to our lives as believers. And so uh, we ask uh, your, uh, your blessing uh, on our time here. Speak to our hearts. And then for the other ongoing ministries, Awana Youth Group, we thank you for all the workers, the leaders. Pray for the word of God to go forth with power in those contexts as well. So, Lord, again, we thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word the ministry of your spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, you note uh, the outline. We've worked our way all the way down right to where we are here, concluding statements of benediction. That's where we are tonight. The theme of the book is the day of Christ, uh, Christ coming for the church. How many chapters is it mentioned in, in the book? How many? All of them. Yeah. Every chapter. And we'll see that even again tonight. Uh, Paul uh, was a human instrument that God used to found the church on his second missionary journey. He was only there a few short weeks. The church was still pretty green, needed some shoring up, some strengthening, especially in relationship to the Lord's return for his people, some details there, and also Christian living. Uh, They were on fire when they first got saved, and, and that was good. But, you know, even on fire, brand new Christians still need to be strengthened. And so he writes this letter to uh, strengthen them. Uh, just by way of review, uh, we live here in the church age, and, and Paul talks about the rapture here at the end of chapter 4. Uh, next really big event on, on God's prophetic calendar. The rapture is a brand, new, a brand new thing, never mentioned in the Old Testament. Why is that? <clears throat> What's that? It was a mystery. And the mystery truth relates to what? What's that? Well, yeah, it wasn't. It was a divine secret. And I'm really thinking about church truth here. Uh, The whole church was a mystery. uh, And everything related to the church was a mystery. And that's what I'm saying. This aspect of Christ's coming was not in the Old Testament scriptures, right? You can't go to chapter and verse in the Old Testament and say, well, here's a rapture. No, 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 it wasn't there. And the reason it wasn't there is because the church wasn't even there as far as revelation. What about this aspect? The second coming of of Messiah to the earth. Is that Old Testament? Yes, very strongly so. Daniel, Zechariah, you know, we could go on down through the prophets. Yes, so this was a mystery, not revealed in the Old Testament because it was church truth. And this is where we are. He wanted to make it clear that all who have died in the church age are going to go and be with the Lord in this event called the rapture. Not just those that are living, but those that have also died. Makes that very clear in chapter 4. But then he also fills in on some things they already knew about the day of the Lord and builds on that in chapter 5, day of the Lord judgment, that will follow this rapture event here. 
So that's uh, end of chapter 4 into chapter 5. And then uh, as we go on from there, he emphasizes a number of body life instructions that we talked about. It's like he gets to the end of his letter and he says, I want to make about 10 more points here, but I don't have a lot of time or space to do it. So he's going to rapid fire, bring these bullet points in. And uh, we see there, he emphasizes properly recognizing the God-ordained leaders. Be at peace among yourselves, warn the unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, no, uh, no rendering evil for evil, pursue good for all. Like I say, these are body life instructions. And say, well, these instructions, you know, are just for the leaders. No, the whole body is to be holding each other accountable and, and building into one another's lives. So body life instructions, which is then uh, followed by some personal directives. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Really, uh, these are the marching orders uh, uh, to us as believers, uh, individual personal directives. We're always to be rejoicing. Always have something to rejoice in as believers. Uh, we need prayer constantly, and, and we need to be uh, thankful. And then finally, uh, we noted, as we rounded out last time in verses uh, 19 through 22, congregational directives regarding the ministry of the word. Do not quench the spirit. You know, when God tells you something, uh, what are you going to do with it? You're going to submit to it? You're going to resist it. Don't quench the spirit. And Excuse me. We know what we know through the word of God. Do not spise God's revelation. Test all things. Don't quench your spirit, but, but examine. There's lots of people saying all kinds of things out here. Uh, hold fast what is good and abstain from what is destructive. So that's where we uh, finished off last time in terms of uh, the ministry of the word. We now come to the wrap-up of the book, and uh, we find this in verses 23 through 28, the benediction and concluding remarks. Let's have somebody read verses uh, 23 and 24. Who wants to read that for us? Yeah, Vince? Oh, okay. Okay, thank you. So he begins here, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Uh, Often at the close of his letters, he likes to emphasize God being the God of peace. And uh, how wonderful that is. You know, those of us who know him, know him as the God of peace, right? We've been reconciled to God. What were we before we uh, were brought into a right relationship through repentance and faith? We were the enemies of God. I mean, we were at war with God. We're, we're fighting against the truth of God. But now we've been reconciled, been brought into a right relationship with God. And to us now, he is the God of peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. Uh, the gospel is called the gospel of peace in Romans 10, also Ephesians chapter 6. But uh, I think uh, the emphasis here, too, would relate to experience. In context here, we're talking about practical sanctification. That's what he's saying in this, in this uh, very verse here at the beginning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And so as we think about peace in the process of sanctification, we think about our walk, we think about body life. He's just been giving lots of body life instructions. And uh, the goal is that we not only... Uh, we do have peace uh, uh, with God, but we want to have the peace of God in, in our daily walk. Notice it's God who brings about this peace. 
Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. This is God's doing. It's interesting. Uh, we think about our walk in uh, Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. It doesn't say work for it, but let it work it out. You have salvation, now work it out in your life with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You know, we have a, an interesting balance here. You work it out, it is God who works in you. And so uh, there's human responsibility, and yet, and yet God is behind it all, uh, working in us uh, to do his good pleasure. Um, so, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. The word uh, sanctify means to be set apart. And uh, we as believers are set apart in Christ, and then we grow in our sanctification. Uh, there's both uh, positional sanctification as well as practical sanctification. We might call uh, perfected sanctification ultimately. But uh, note the word sanctify is the Greek word hagiazo, which means to set apart or to be consecrated to God. It means to be holy. And there's three aspects of sanctification. As I say, there's positional, there's progressive, and there's perfected sanctification. When we see him, we will be like him, John says. I mean, at that point, we'll be everything we ought to be. Uh, we will be perfectly holy, not only in our position, but also in our practice. Uh, we will be perfected forever. But right here, uh, what's he talking about when he says, uh, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely? What kind of sanctification are we talking about here? What's that? <laughs> We're talking about uh, progressive, right? Or practical, whatever you want to say. Practical or progressive sanctification. That's what he's saying. He said, may God himself, himself sanctify you completely. Uh, if it's already done, he doesn't need to be doing it. Uh, it's already, position is already there. But uh, this is progressive sanctification. And they relate, uh, if uh, positional sanctification is a reality, progressive sanctification will also be at work in a person's life. We have them brought together really in one verse here in Hebrews ten fourteen, By one offering, that's the cross, by one offering he, speaking of Christ, by one offering he has perfected forever. Um, you know what that is? That is positional sanctification. Uh, you have been, as a believer, perfected forever. You can't get any more perfected than perfected. You can't have any longer than forever. This is our position. But notice then he says, those who are being sanctified. So if the position is there, by the one offering, you've been cleansed from all sin and you've been therefore perfected forever... But then it's at work in your life, uh, the sanctifying work of the Lord, who are being sanctified. They both go together. Somebody says, well, I've been forgiven. I know the Lord. Well, then there is an ongoing work of sanctification in your life. It's called the Holy Spirit being at work in a person's life. And so they really do go together. I often say, don't try to claim the first part of the verse if the last part of the verse is not uh, at work in your life in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it's simply not true because the Bible says, what does God do with all of those who are true children, unless they're illegitimate? What does he do? He chastens us. Hebrews chapter 12, 7 through 11. He chastens every one of his children to build holiness into our lives. 
So uh, God is at work uh, in, in the lives of all true children. You have the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was at work to uh, build uh, sanctification into us. Now, this uh, comes right on the heels of what he has just said here in verse uh, 22, where he says, abstain from every form of evil. And then he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Well, how can, how can we make this happen, that we abstain from every form of evil, all that is spiritually destructive? Well, it's God who is at work in our lives. We need his help. And so I really think you have a, a prayerful desire being expressed on the part of Paul here, that God would be at work uh, to where they are abstaining from every form of evil, uh, where they are being set apart in their practical walk uh, completely. Okay, uh, well, that's the first half of the verse. There's another half here. Any other thoughts here? Yeah, Vince? Yeah. That is so true. Yeah, there, there's a whole package here we could develop, but you're absolutely right. Sanctify them through your, your word. Your word is truth. There, John 17. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to do it. That's for sure. And we just saw a tremendous emphasis on, on the word, even in this very context here. So great point. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go over it yet, but I'm going to. Yeah, where he says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, comma, and then, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going there. I think he kind of shifts gears just a little bit here. We're still on the subject of sanctification, but he's now really going to talk in terms of our position. Uh, you know, and I, like I say, they're very closely related. Where you have one, you, you have the other. But uh, it's interesting where he says now, and in addition to what he has just said, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when he says your whole spirit, soul, and body, the commentaries are pretty much in agreement. We're talking about he's emphasizing the whole person, not really wanting to do a theological study on his man uh, dichotomy or trichotomy. I happen to think it's a trichotomy because of other places, too, where uh, soul and spirit are differentiated. It's like it's in Ephesians uh, or Hebrews 4.12 and so forth. But um, it's interesting. Uh, it's hard to uh, sometimes make distinctions. Just in general, spirit relates to God consciousness. You know, apart from the Lord, we're spiritually dead. Uh, it relates to worship, knowing God. Uh, we don't know God or the things of God you know, as those who are spiritually dead. Uh, sometimes people say, well, you're, people are alive in their soul, but they're, and they're alive in their body, but they're dead in their spirit, spiritually dead. Uh, soul relates to self-consciousness, uh, relates to the self-life, including such things as intellect, emotions, will. All people uh, have this going for them. The body is a physical vessel in which the, the spirit and the soul live. Henry Morris, uh, probably, it's, it's right here, <laughs> Although probably too simplistic, probably, it is uh, convenient to think of the soul, body, and spirit as representing mental, physical, and spiritual components of man, respectively. 
So, you know, again, a little simplistic. I think we could, you know, there's a lot of nuances here to throw in as you start comparing Scripture with Scripture. But just in a, in a general way, yes. Yeah. Right. Right. So do they have a, they don't have the Holy Spirit. Right. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Right. But, they, but they have a human spirit. Yes. Oh, yeah. Sure. Um, and this is where it gets com- complicated. You know, even as far as the dividing of soul asunder and spirit, like he talks about, where is that division exactly? Um, you know, they... Uh, uh, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14. And yet, it's kind of interesting to me that unbelievers can know something of God when he brings about conviction. Uh, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit, Stephen says to the, the, spirit, the leaders there in, in Israel. And, uh, you know, when God's talking to Cain, I always go back to, because I think the Bible builds on the Bible, and God is telling him, you know, you should resist it, uh, lest it rule over you. Um, well, you know, if he can't comprehend anything God's saying, uh, why is God even talking to him? So I think when God brings, I talk about the enlightenment of conviction. Uh, you are responsible to respond to that. And yet apart from God, you know, nobody ever seeks after God. You, you never really pick up on any of the things of God on, on your own. So I don't know. I really probably got off track there a little bit, but... Uh, okay. Um, let's see. What else do we want to say here? I got a couple other slides here. <clears throat> it is often uh, said that people without the Lord are alive in their souls. I already said, and they, and they are alive in their body, but they are dead in their spirit. That is, they are spiritually dead. They don't know God. They don't have a spiritual relationship with him. There is one aspect of their personhood that is defunct and doesn't work. Uh, that is why Paul says that the natural man, spiritually dead person, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and only by the Holy Spirit can a quickened spirit truly know the things of God. And, of course, one of the key areas here uh, would be grace, right? Uh, you know, I think a person can intellectually know about grace, but they don't really know grace. It doesn't really resonate or make sense to them unless they have the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we preach a gospel of grace, and, and people don't get, you know, they naturally think in terms of what? What is natural thinking about? Works. I'm doing something to make myself right with God. Grace is what? Oh, no, it's, you don't do anything. Christ did it all for you. And so uh, unsaved people can understand intellectually. I, I think I've dealt with lots of people who intellectually would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they understand intellectually what you're saying. But it really makes no sense to them in their spirit. They don't really believe it. It makes no sense to natural thinking. Only those truly enlightened can properly appreciate grace. Only the saved truly believe and rest in grace. So I think that's a, that's a dividing line between true believers and unbelievers, the issue of grace. I don't think you really ever get grace truly until you are enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, So he's talking about sanctification here. Uh, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved or kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, we're not there yet, but in light of what he goes on to say, it kind of governs uh, one's theology here. Because he goes on to say, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. What's he going to do? And how is he going to keep you? <laughs> You're going to be preserved. What? Blameless. Blameless. You're going to be preserved blameless. And he who calls you will do it. Well, being preserved blameless, is that... Uh, what, what, what form of sanctification are we talking about here? I would say we have to be talking about perfect because that's the only way we're blameless. Uh, in terms of our position. You know, in terms of our walk, uh, not all believers are everything we ought to be. In fact, who is? Uh, we know that some will be ashamed at Christ's coming, as John says. Uh, you know, that's not good. Uh, that's not good in terms of their practice. We know that some will suffer loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's not good either, right? In terms of practice. Um, we know that it is possible to stumble. Second uh, Peter three seventeen says it's possible for the believer to fall from steadfast and be led away with the error of the wicked. That's not good. Paul says that our aim, whether present or absent, is to be well-pleasing to him. That's our aim, but, you know, I don't know that Christ is going to say, uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant, to, to the person whose works all go up in smoke. Now, they're still going to be preserved blameless. In what sense? Well, in terms of their positional sanctification. And so I think that's ultimately where we end up here. Uh, the idea here then would be that uh, in our position, uh, we are completely blameless. And no matter what, we're not going to fall from that position. We are going to be preserved blameless all the way through uh, to the very end here. And in the meantime, we talk about how this intersects uh, po uh, practical and positional we know that God who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, God is at work in, in all of our lives uh, to uh, perfect us. But uh, what I'm talking about right at the moment here is more like Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That, that idea of faultless is the idea here again being uh, preserved blameless. Uh, it is interesting, I was reading the commentary that uh, on some of the tombstones they have found at Thessalonica, they had on their tombstones, blameless. <laughs> you know, if a person's walking by there, you, you, you might have the wrong idea if you don't have some theology, right? <laughs> so here, here's a very egotistical person, <laughs> blameless. Well, we are blameless in what sense? In, in the sense of positional sanctification. Uh, in, in that sense, we are for sure. Um, okay, uh, let's uh, talk about the end of the verse here. Be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses this twice here in the text here tonight. Lord Jesus Christ, we often talk about this kind of like being the, the Lord's full name. Is it the Lord's full name? I think we could add a lot of other names on here, right? I mean, he's got lots of names, whether I am, uh, you know, all, all kinds of things we could talk about. But a lot of times we think about, uh, you know, when in the New Testament, when a writer really wants to express the kind of the full breadth of, of Christ's name, Lord Jesus Christ pretty well does sum it up. Lord emphasizes, you know, him being master. Lord means master, God master. Jesus means savior. 
God's Savior. Christ means anointed one or the, the chosen one, the special one that God has chosen. And so uh, Christ is all of these. He's our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, and then we follow up with verse 24. It goes right into it. Uh, that your whole spirit, soul, and body may be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, it's going to happen. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it, who will also bring it to pass. You're going to be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Notice uh, he who calls you. Uh, Paul, when he uses the word calls, consistently uses this in an effectual way. The called are those who have responded to God's call. Uh, They, they in effect, are are the elect. And uh, let's see, i got a slide here for this. God's call to believers is always shown to be effectual, uh, certainly in Paul. Uh, All the elect respond to this call. We don't fully comprehend all the tensions and variables involved, but the outcome is clear. Uh, we, we are, the called are the believers. Uh, Paul consistently uses that way. It's not like, well, the, the called may or may not respond. No, for Paul, they've, they are those that have responded. They are the called, and they, and they are the respondent. They are the responders, those who have responded. And it says, he who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. He's not going to lose you in the process. You say, well, boy, I, was, I, I got saved. I was cleansed of all my sins, but somewhere I lost that position. No, you won't. Uh, he's not going to drop you. Uh, you're not going to be um, aborted somewhere along the way. He's not going to lose you. Uh, he is faithful. He's trustworthy, reliable, dependable. You have the same kind of language in 1 Corinthians of all places. Chapter 1, who will also confirm you to the end. That you may be blameless. I think that's the same sense we have from Paul here in Thessalonica. We'll confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He's faithful to bring this about. By whom you were called, same language, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God, again, is faithful to bring this about, to confirm you to the end that you may be blameless. Yeah, you can put, if you're a believer, we can put blameless on your tombstone. Maybe we want a long explanation, but (laughs) Uh, it's true for all of us who are believers, though. He who calls you is faithful. Who will do it? He will bring it to pass. He's going to bring it to pass where at that last day you are presented as as blameless. What about all those believers I just talked about losing their rewards? They, too, will be presented blameless. You know why? Yeah, it's because of grace. It's because of Jesus my position is not based on anything I've done. It's based 100% on what Jesus Christ has done. And that's true for all believers. Whether we've been really faithful stewards or not so faithful stewards, our position never changes. And I think he comes circles back to that emphasis here at the end of verse 23 and then reaff- and affirms it then in verse 24. All right, any other thoughts? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where he talks about uh, that God keeps himself sanctified completely. And then in verse 24, he caps the whole section by saying he will surely do it. Yep. The, we're, we're referencing the brother that we talked about who forced kind of go up the smoke at the, um, on, the, on the judgment. Believers, the believer's judgment. Well, 
I think we see activity. <laughs> we see the activity of God. I do think there is a sin unto death. If a believer is so rebellious that they won't respond to correction, God may take them home. Many at Corinth had died. And uh, so I, I kind of see that as it were, God at work in their lives too. And uh, um, so, you know, he does discipline us to build holiness into all of our lives. But uh, if a person absolutely is rebelling against that, there does come a point where God maybe just takes them home. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, is everybody going to have a reward, you know, for faithful service? I don't know. First Corinthians 3 talks about, you know, how everything goes up in smoke, but, but they themselves will be saved. Mm-hmm. And when you see the fruits of the Spirit there, you would mm-hmm. think that there is obviously some sanctification. Mm-hmm. But then if God is at work in such a person to the point where, yes, we're visible fruits, we, are, we see that they're saved, yet their works somehow go up in smoke at the end. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it seems like a contrast of what was this person, how, how, is, that even, how is that even possible? Yeah, I think even for, for a... a rebellious child, there's still evidence of the Spirit at work in their life. I think, I think they're miserable to start with. You know, grieve not the Holy Spirit, quench not the Spirit. I think, I think there is, if you really have the Holy Spirit, I think you're miserable in your rebellion. And so even that is evidence. Now, is that fruit? <laughs> it's evidence that the Spirit's there, but... Um, yeah, he was begun a good work and you will perform it. I think God will continue to work in your life. Uh, but not to say that you can't get off track as, an, as a believer and be a very disobedient child. Um, that's true too. I think the normal expectation is there will be some fruit to show. Something. Um, yeah. Sure. Sure. Oh yeah. Right. Right. Oh. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I full, and I think that's probably true for all of us. I mean, who, who is completely good steward with everything? I mean, we're all being great on a curve in that sense. And none of us have, have reached perfection. I mean, Paul says that. Uh, what I was referring to, though, uh, Caleb, here is in, uh, you know, 3.15 uh, or 3.13, First Corinthians 3 there. Each one's work will uh, be clear for the day will declare it. Uh, be revealed by fire. Uh, the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So the issue is, you know, what is the quality of workmanship? And then if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So there you go. I think that's what you're talking about. You know, if, if there is some work there that uh, survives the test, there will be a reward for it. But then it goes on in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. So it's kind of like... Uh, the work is burned, 
but he himself is saved. So he's making a contrast between his works are burned, but he himself is saved. So potentially, you know, you could be like, okay, um, my works are all burned, but I'm still saved, even if you went to that nth degree. Um, I'm thinking, hopefully, everyone, you know, you go down to chapter 4, though, we're in that same, um, uh, well, I've turned there, but first, yeah, First Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, where some would argue there will be something for everybody, uh, or verse... Um, uh, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing, this is 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will uh, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. And some would argue, well, that's emphasizing everyone will have something, some praise, you know, uh, that they have done something. Sure, sure. Yeah, I guess we're getting real technical when we're asking, you know, will, can it be possible for a believer to have absolutely nothing to show, you know, on that day? Uh, well, that's a great question. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think uh, the thief on the cross, there was some fruit in his life, you know, when he witnessed to this other thief. Uh, I would think for, for all believers, there's something there. Um, but God will sort it out. You know, and what really meets his test will receive a reward. Um, each one's praise will come from God at the end of the day. Um, he'll sort it out. Yep. Anyone else? Good discussion. Okay, let's, uh, let's press on here. Uh, he says at the end here, uh, let's have somebody read verse uh, 25 through 28 to finish this out here. Who wants to read that? 20, yeah, Andrew? Okay, thank you. So he says, brethren, pray for us. Uh, we know from the beginning of the letter, he starts out with uh, Paul, Silas, and, and Timothy. They are together. They are, you know, sending the greetings. And so now he's asking for prayer. It's a general word here, prayer. Uh, what is prayer? Uh, somebody says, pray for me. What, what are they saying? Why are they asking prayer? Yeah, and Why? Why? Well, I know he knows, but but why do we even ask for prayer? But why? <laughs> huh? Well, that's true. What? There you go. We need prayer because we need help, right? Prayer is uh, expressing dependence upon God. We need God's help. Exactly. I mean, otherwise, why? I don't need prayer. Sometimes people almost act like this. Well, this is not a big deal. I don't need prayer. Well, we need prayer every step of the way for everything. Uh, so he's asking prayer, recognizing his need for help uh, and his dependence upon God. The request for prayer is general, but in almost every place, Paul makes a specific request. It's about the work he is doing for God. In praying for God's people, we are essentially pray about three things, their walk, their witness, their circumstances, and all with the glory of God as the end goal. So, uh, I mean, almost always when Paul's asking for prayer, it's about the work that God is doing through him. And he's asking for help in that regard. And then he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 
I thought we'd pause right here and practice this. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, it's right there. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Uh, you, think, you think this is for today or not? What's that? Is, is that what it says? Albert, I'm not sure you're obedient in all things. <laughs> well, if it's holy, it'll be okay. <laughs> this became a problem in the early church as far as uh, the holy part of it. Uh, it. It became a little unholy. And so the early church decided, yeah, th- there are other forms we could express uh, the spirit of what's being said here. I think in this culture, a holy kiss was very comparable to, uh, you know, a warm handshake in our culture or, you know, maybe a holy hug or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, yes, J- Jay? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think we have a cultural factor involved here, for sure. And um, the idea here, I think the spirit of it is that we are to greet one another in in a warm, brotherly, sisterly fashion. Uh, That is the spirit of what is being expressed here. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. A set apart, you know, uh, a set apart greeting. Greet one another with a with a with a set apart Christian greeting, uh, you know, warm brotherly greeting. Uh, and it's interesting to me though that you know we we can't we have a, a command from an apostle about greeting here. I think sometimes greetings are kind of a just a footnote in a lot of people's minds, but greetings are a really big deal here. Uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, you know, we're to be serious about this. By the way, we take our greeting time serious at, at, at our church. You know, it's not just a mere 10-second thing. You know, good to see you. <laughs> Which we are glad to see each other. But uh, it is important. And notice what he says uh, here. Greet all the brethren, all the family, all the, all the brothers and sisters. Greet everyone uh, with a holy kiss. Uh, everyone matters. I think the idea here is make sure you're communicating love to all the family. Everybody should be greeting one another uh, in this way. Yeah. But, it, you know, one thing we're thankful for around here is when it comes to when we take a little break to, to uh, what do you call it, uh, welcome each other or greet each other. Yeah, greeting time. Nobody wants to sit back down. No, I know. They're happy to see each other. We've got, we got, yeah, we got, we got special signals that go off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amen. That's right. I agree. 
Well, then he says here, verse uh, 27, I charge you by the Lord. That's a pretty serious thing for an apostle to say. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. So this is very serious. In fact, he, he's, he's, he's charging them. He's he kind of like putting them under an oath uh, that they're going to do this. Uh, very somber uh, statement here in terms of serious. The word of God is important information. And he has just, under inspiration, penned this. He wants them all to hear it. Um, the exhortation to the public reading of the letter underscores that the word of God is for all God's people, not just a few select persons. The scriptures are not just for one class or group, but for all members in God's family. He wants them all to hear it. All God's children have the Holy Spirit. All are part of the priesthood of all believers. All can understand what God wants them to know. So he wants, uh, he wants everybody. Uh, notice that this epistle be uh, read to all the holy brethren. By the way, he has just said earlier in the chapter, uh, test all things, prove all things. Well, if you don't have the whole truth, how are you going to properly test? And so uh, that kind of goes together with this. Notice he says it's to be read to all the holy brethren. What about the unholy brethren? Should it be read to them too? It does? Uh, who read the scripture for me? Yeah, what does your... You had... Okay, maybe holy's not in there. Maybe it's not in the, it's not in the Greek. It wasn't in the original It might not have been. Well, I don't know if you can go that far. Because we don't have the original manuscripts, brother. <laughs> well, NU is the older manuscripts. So what we want to say is it's not in the older manuscripts. I don't know if we can say it's not in the original autographs because there would be a real debate over that here <laughs> as far as, you know, which, which manuscripts are we going by? <laughs> Caleb? Well, right. Sure. Oh, yeah. That that's definitely what we're talking about here, and uh, we are all holy in the sense that we are all saints, and uh, so yeah. Um, whether you have holy here or not, really, we are all the holy brethren. We are set apart uh, positionally. We are all saints. And uh, in fact, you know, Paul, again, it's always interesting to me that he starts out in 1 Corinthians this way, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to all who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that's positional, uh, called to be saints. You know, you, you don't become a saint when you die. Like I often say, if, if you're not a saint when you die, you'll never be one. Uh, there's saints and there's ain'ts. And as, you know, the word holy and the word saint are, are really derivatives of the same basic Greek uh, word, hagiazo. So, um, yeah, so we're all the holy brethren here. Uh, and he says, I want you to read it to everybody, to the whole family, to all of God's children here that are on the scene, to the, all the brethren. And then he ends up, uh, closes out the book, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, Amen. He begins the book on grace and he ends the book on, on grace. And uh, in fact, uh, it seems that Paul essentially coined this word grace and made it a, a part of customary Christian greetings. The usual farewell, 
was transformed into a grace greeting by Paul. I mean, Paul greets with grace, signs off with grace, grace to you. Uh, for Paul, the whole of Christianity can be boiled down to the word grace. He preached the gospel of grace. We are saved by grace. We are what we are by grace. I mean, uh, we are trophies of grace when it's all said and done here. Beautiful uh, benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. May the favor of God rest upon you. Grace means God's favor, his unmerited favor. It's that sense. I think we kind of have the equivalent of what we have in the Old Testament. Uh, the disposition of God's grace towards his people is seen in the Old Testament. In the God-ordained blessing of number six. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You know, it is kind of amazing that I'm going to heaven, right? Yeah, yeah, you need to say amen to that. I'm really amazed that you're going to heaven. <laughs> That's true. I'm amazed too. I'm, I'm really quite shocked about it. Uh, Forever we may walk around, I don't know what we're going to do. This is, note the word may. Forever we may walk around on the streets of gold and glory and ask ourselves, what did I ever do to deserve this? And the eternal answer will be nothing. Nothing. It's all grace. God glorifies himself through us. He is going to show off his grace for all eternity in conjunction with us. His special trophies of grace. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Above all, what we are as children of God is we are children of grace, trophies of God's grace. Indeed, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up 1 Thessalonians? We'll go on into 2 Thessalonians next week. Get started there, Lord willing. But any other thoughts? Okay, if not, let's uh, share some uh, prayer items here.